Welcome to So You Want to Be a Witch, the podcast for soul-centered entrepreneurs and the people who love them. Hello, hello. Welcome to Free Coaching Friday, Thursday. What day is it? It's Thursday. Um, Today we are talking about how to lower your prices, whether you can pitch high-end offers on a webinar, what to do with what I'm going to call revenant clients, stay tuned from that, and more. I'm Sarah M. Chappell, founder of the Holistic Business Academy, and here is how Free Coaching Thursday, because it's Thursdays I'm recording this, works. Every single Wednesday over on my Instagram at Sarah M. Chappell, we post a box in my stories. It's a question sticker, and you can drop any questions you have in there about business. And then on Thursdays, I go live, usually around 1 p.m. Eastern time. Today, I'm going live early because I have other shit to do. Uh, I will answer as many questions as possible. You can always find them over on our Instagram feed or by listening on our podcast, So You Want to Be a Witch, on Tuesdays where we release the audio recording. If you're listening to this on the podcast, then come on over and hang out with us on Instagram and participate. I'm excited for us to dive in today. We have some really great questions. So our first question today is, how do you respond to a potential client who ghosts for three months and then comes back? So I'm calling these Revenant clients. I am trademarking that. You cannot steal it. Revenant clients are the clients that ghost you and then come back from the dead. It makes sense, right? Revenants being like fucking zombies coming back from the dead. Revenant clients. I'm super here for that. Great to see you guys hopping on live. Hello, hello, hello. So I think that this is a situation where I would want a little bit more information about what the ghosting meant um, because there's kind of different levels of client ghosting. When you say potential client to me, that implies that you had not signed a contract, they had not made an agreement, they hadn't paid anything yet. Um, so they that's a little bit different. There's a couple different things. So but this idea of like the revenant client, I like this. I am, I am totally claiming that. I'm sorry. That one's mine. Who comes back from the dead. Uh, I think that it depends. This is really a boundaries question first and foremost, right? If somebody talked to you three months ago and, you know... Uh, it wasn't the right time or something, and now they're interested, I don't really think of that as ghosting. If you guys were talking and then they didn't, they stopped responding, that's kind of what I'm assuming the situation is. Um, I think that's a boundary thing for you and your communication. I think that folks do lose emails sometimes. I think sometimes it's hard for people to say no to stuff um, that they've engaged a conversation around. There can be some embarrassment and shame that people carry. So for me, that's the gray area. If this is someone who was like, yes, I'm in, and then either changed their mind or signed a contract and backed out or like signed up for something and backed out, that for me is generally a no-go zone. So this like overall question is like, what are your boundaries and what was the specific situation that happened? It's not uncommon for people to be interested in hiring you for a service or joining a program, deciding it's not the right time and then coming back around. In fact, I think that's very common and often those folks become fantastic customers. They just have a bit of a longer time frame. Someone who has engaged with you and was like, Maybe they had a call with you or you like sent them the information and they didn't respond. Again, that's that gray area. And I think it probably depends on how far down the rabbit hole you went. Um, Were they like, I'm in and then didn't respond? Um, Or was it more of a, they asked for more information and then didn't respond? To me, somebody who says that they're going to make a commitment and then doesn't tell you they're not going to, for me, that would be kind of a little bit of a communication red flag, right? I know people change their minds, but if somebody said they wanted to book one-on-one coaching with me. We had a call. Uh, I sent them all the info and then it was crickets. That's a bit of a red flag for me because I um, I really value clear communication. It's absolutely critical to me in business. So I would at least want somebody to say, you know what, now's not the right time. 
So for me, I might be a little hesitant about what that relationship would look like if they didn't, you know, kind of have the respect of me to tell me that it was a no. But I do think you need to be mindful of the shame people feel around that, realizing you can't afford something, realizing it's not the right time. It can be challenging for people to talk about that. Um, but if this is something where like they booked or that was like, it was confirmed and it fell through. And, and like, it's not that it fell through. You use the word ghost, which has a pretty specific meaning in this context, in like a relationship context. That for me is, that's a no, at least when it comes to more in-depth work, right? You know, there are folks who, yeah, like in terms of like access to me, like that's somebody who I might try to put in a, in a course or in something that's like passive, um, someplace where it's not about a relationship to my energy, because I think that I would have a hard time personally um, with the kind of trust factor there and feeling like they were going to show up fully, fully for the work and that I was going to show up fully for the work. And so maybe that's a referral. So that's kind of the three different situations that I can, as I perceive them, kind of extrapolating from your question for the Revenant, the Revenant uh, clients. But I think the big thing is this is a boundaries issue for you. Where is your boundary? What lines did they cross that has you calling them ghosting? Um, how far were they on like kind of the customer path to working with you? And then, you know, what do you need in terms of communication? And honestly, if you decide to work with this person, it might be good to tell them, hey, I'm super happy to work with you, but our previous interaction, you know, you you stopped responding to me after we agreed to this. I want to clarify that if we're going to work together, I'm going to need this kind of communication, and I would put it in your contract. Especially if um, you're using the word client, so I'm assuming you're providing some kind of service or some kind of coaching. You cannot do your job if they don't respond to you, full stop, or if they don't show up. So that's the kind of thing I might bake into a contract. What are those communication expectations? Because if you already know that's an issue with this particular person, regardless of what happened, um, you can clarify those expectations and boundaries up front if you do choose to work with them, if you do. I hope that, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any other little pieces to that, but I think that's the primary kind of taste is, is how, how, what boundaries did they cross? And like, this is also an intuition, trust yourself. It can be really hard to say no to clients um, in our business at any stage, especially if you feel like you need the work uh, or you do need the work, you need the money. But poor communication, especially in a service or coaching relationship, can be a recipe for disaster. You know, for me personally, there's only one time, there's like only one situation essentially where I kind of will not work with somebody anymore in any capacity. And that is when somebody ghosts me on payments. That for me is a hard boundary, not available for that, right? I, that makes me feel like shit. Um, and I, I'm not okay with that. Right. So I think that that, you know, you have to figure out what your boundaries are. Um, and I would say I would be a little me personally concerned if somebody like agreed to something or entered into a contract or was like, yes, I want to sign the contract and then didn't do it. That also for me, I'd probably be like, like, it's fine that they didn't want to do it, but I probably wouldn't want to work with them in a one on one setting because um, I would be concerned and it'd be hard for me to show up really fully and present in that in that situation. So. Those are some things to think about. But like, you know, if somebody was interested and then just didn't really reply, I don't know that I would worry about that so much. So I hope that gives you some stuff to chew on. Uh, and this is, you know, one of the things that I like to think about with situations like this is essentially like how this can be processized, right? So you're not making this decision every time. Clarifying your boundaries around client communication, around when people don't move forward with something, 
what are your kind of personal red flags, warnings, boundary breaking actions um, that essentially would get somebody to be either banned from your company, which is something that I think it's important for us to all think about what are the behaviors that would ban somebody from our company or essentially mean that somebody's not a good fit for client work with you or in-depth work for you, but maybe they could be somewhere else, right? Maybe they could be in your in your membership or they could be in, you know, down, you know, downloadables you don't care, like that's fine, or they could buy a course from you, but like you're not gonna work with them one-on-one. So having kind of like a, a decision tree, triage, pre-decided process for this, maybe this is a good time to think about that a little bit for yourself as well in terms of your boundaries. Um, but the, the Revenant client, you know, again, sometimes I think that the, that's great. It means that they've had time to think about it. They're ready for it. Sometimes, sometimes it means that it's probably still not a good fit because um, you guys are not matching in terms of communication. All right, let's keep going. All right, I have the cute Etsy shop experience, a sweet new logo and labels, etc. Now what the fuck to do? I think my first question to you is, did you sell anything before you did all that? Have you validated your offer? or your products. I'm assuming it's an Etsy shop, logo, labels, products. Have people bought these before? If not, that is gonna be like step one, especially now that you've made an investment in these things is getting some sales. Um, Until we've made sales, your offer, your business concept, it's not validated. Even if you have a cute Etsy shop, even if you have a really sweet logo, um, until people have bought your products, you haven't confirmed that people want your products. So, you know, since you've already kind of set everything up, that's why you didn't mention it, like, have you sold anything? And not necessarily on your pretty Etsy shop or with your pretty labels, just like have people bought your shit. If they haven't, that is step one, right? So the what the fuck to do now, um, Etsy is a search engine and I know it does generate revenue for some people, but like kind of like a little bit passively, but overall counting on like your Etsy shop to generate sales, I wouldn't do that. Um, I think of that kind of as like a placeholder, kind of like in the Google of homemade goods, if you will. now what the fuck to do is to sell it, right? You need to market and sell your work, which means you need to make the case for why it matters, why people should want it, what transformation results it provides. Um, often this is gonna be through social media. Um, you could also do this at markets um, in your local community, really smart. Maybe participate in some giveaways or some online um, uh, like fundraising things, places just so you, where you can donate a little bit of product and kind of get some extensive reach. You know, I mean, there's a lot of like strategies to do, but basically you just need to get your offer. You need to get your products in front of people. Um, that's that's the now what the fuck to do is to get in front of more people so they buy them. Uh, you can also look at the wholesale route. Make sure your pricing will accommodate that because wholesale is going, like people are, if you sell something to a retailer, they're going to at least probably double the price for a physical product. It depends on the on the product, but for what most people I work with make, it's going to be like a, a 100% markup. Um Wholesale can be a really great way to get some some cash flow, but also it is also marketing, right? Because now people are going to see your products in different places. So if you are a product maker in a local community, that's a really great place to start. Um, Places like co-ops, small businesses, uh, super fantastic local markets. Um, And then on social media, thinking about what do people need to know in order to know that your product is something they need and what is the outcome, the transformation that they can get from their product. Yeah, the what the fuck to do now is like get your product in front of people. Um, And yeah, I mentioned a couple different strategies. You you can also, I mean, depending on relationships you have with people, maybe do trades or something, send people some of your product in exchange for them sharing about it. Um, Being mindful of the fact that folks that do that professionally are going to have a fee. Um, 
to do as I should uh, to advertise something for you. But like if you have friends, you know, you can do things like friends or colleagues and do some like cross promotional stuff. That's the kind of thing that I would start to take a look at. And also like find the folks who you know, do stuff similar to you, but different, right? Like if you make a certain kind of product, um, what, what might be a good pair to it? You know, I, I think of like, you know, people who make like beautiful, like soft goods, um, pairing up with like people who are herbalists and like putting together like a cute little package, you know, the, the thing I wouldn't do is like work on collaborations with other people who make the same thing as you. That doesn't make a ton of sense in general. You're going to want to get into the audiences of people who have kind of similar interests or like make something similar, but different enough that you're not really competitors. So that's the next step is get some sales. And that like, that's the whole, that's the whole thing. That's the whole business. Um, but just, I think the, the big shift based on what you kind of wrote here at the shop experience, sweet new logo and labels is that like switching into active selling mode. That is your job now. Um, you have everything set up, go sell. Is it okay to pitch high ticket in a webinar? Uh, so high ticket for folks who maybe aren't familiar with that, that's kind of like a business speak for um, an expensive offer generally, or something that's considered to be higher priced, high price, high ticket. Um, those words are used pretty interchangeably. Is it okay? Sure. You can pitch whatever the fuck you want from a webinar. Um, I think that, you know, there are a lot of like beliefs around what high ticket offers require. And a lot of people pitch high ticket from webinars. That actually was like the thing probably five or six years ago. Almost everyone was pitching high ticket from webinars. One of my mentors pitched his $20,000, $40,000 mastermind from a webinar. So I think the, the thing is when you're pitching from a webinar and it's high ticket is how do you want to close the sale? Um, there's kind of two options. You can go directly to the sale, send people to a sales page. What I see as being more generally more useful and what we've done actually for my incubator program um, in its earlier stages, uh, frankly, before I had more confidence just pitching directly to the sale with something that was high ticket. Now I would now I would just I do just pitch it directly. But um, is that we actually pitched people to a sales call, basically a discovery call, but they already had all the information. I did the full pitch in the webinar. I um, you know laid everything out and we kind of called it an application call, right? It was a check-in to make sure that I could actually help them, that they were a good fit for the program before making such a high investment, uh, especially when this was a newer program for me. And I didn't really, I really felt like I needed to talk to people to make sure that I could help them in the incubator. Now um, my system is really smoothed out. I don't really need to do that anymore. Um, so I found that doing that and like people got the price on the webinar, everything. So it wasn't like a, and book a sales call, like, and find out. Like I, I everything was super upfront. Because everything was upfront, I think that I closed at like 90% for those calls. That's really, that's high, right? Everyone was pre-qualified because they had all the information, they had the offer, they had the price. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think I offered an incentive for people to book a call while we were on the webinar. So that was the call to action. I think maybe they got a bonus with me or something. I can't remember now. And then I got to talk to them. If you're trying to avoid sales calls, I think that's fine. Maybe sending them to an application is a good way to pre-qualify, but you can also just go straight to the sale. This has to do, I mean, what, whenever the, the format for selling, I really just don't think matters that much, right? It's how you present it. So just remember that your job in the webinar then is to give people the information and context they need to understand why, even though this is a high ticket offer, it is valuable. Um, there's a lot of different strategies for that. You know, provided it is accurate and, um, what's the word I want? Supportive. I do think that price anchoring is really helpful for people. Just giving folks a number out of nowhere is not very useful. The brain is just gonna, it needs something to compare it to. 
Um, that is a strategy that can obviously be abused and people do. People make do that in a really gross way. But I think that if what you're trying to do is help people understand the value of what you're including, um, especially without a lot of context, then some price anchoring, which is essentially when you say something like, again, this I think has to be used gingerly, like with like with great care. Um, is say something, uh, say something like my incubator program, right? You know, we do this in that in that webinar because we cover stuff in there that if you like bought courses for it individually or you hired people to help you with it, would cost so much fucking money. Like, it, like I, I've done the math. Like I sat down and added it up, like based on real numbers. How much would it cost to learn all of this outside of this program, right? Or by buying the different programs that cover these different things? Because we cover messaging and copywriting. Uh, we do offer ad around like like supports around like ads offer creation, social media marketing. Like I was like, okay, like this, like if I bought these things individually, what would this look like? Or if I hired someone to do it for me, what would this look like? And I use those numbers to give people an example. And I tell them specifically what I'm saying. I was like, you could hire people to do this for you and it's gonna look like this, right? And those numbers are real numbers based off of the people I know in the industry who charge for teaching these things. And like, you wouldn't know how to do it, right? You'd be paying someone to do it for you. So. I do think that's helpful with higher price pitch. Again, uh, I know you and I know that if you use that, you will be using that in a way that is supportive and honest um, because it helps people to see the value. We may wish human brains work different than they do, but the, like, <laughs> the reality is that we often need we, we often need comparison, especially when it comes to price. So in a webinar, that's a really powerful way to help people understand the value you're providing. Um, again, Use that, use that technique with care. But I think that when done right, it's really useful, especially when you're talking to folks who maybe don't have all the insider knowledge you do about your field. They don't know how much stuff is supposed to cost. Part of your job as a salesperson is to create context for that. Otherwise, people are going to compare your program to like a book, right? Couldn't I just buy a book? Like it's going to default to something else price-wise in their mind that isn't really a fair comparison for the, the labor and expertise that you're bringing. So totally, totally okay to pitch high ticket in a webinar. Those are some ways that I might approach it and have done it before. Great. I'm considering lowering my prices. Is this a good move? And is that an insult to past clients? It's so funny, a couple weeks ago, we had a question about how to raise prices. Now we have one about how to lower. So is that a good move? I don't know that I can answer that for you specifically in this context, because I don't know. Um, the usual reasons that I see people want to lower prices is because sales are low, they're uncomfortable with their price, or as in like they don't believe in the price, they're worried it's too high, there's like some kind of self-judgment, shame, money stuff happening there, or it's actually a misalignment, like the pricing is actually wrong. You put together an offer and you're seeing your workload, you're seeing the transformation it's creating, and you're like, actually, this is too much. If it's the first, sales are low. Lowering the price is not going to solve that problem. Sales being low problems are very rarely a price misalignment. Very rarely. And that's, I know that's really counter, like counterintuitive. We think that the price is the issue. It's usually not. It's usually a communication issue. Learning to communicate about your offers effectively is the biggest challenge for most small business owners. And that's the stuff like it's not sexy. It takes time. It takes practice. You know, I talked in a live on my feed earlier this week about how long it'll take for your business to be successful. One of the reasons it takes new business owners who've never had a business before, business before time to be successful is because of this communication issue. This is the hard work that 
I just think people don't want to do. It's not hot. It, like learning to communicate better, how to talk, how to write, how to like about your offer. It's not as it's not as hot as like lowering prices or finding a cool hashtag strategy or like doing a viral TikTok dance, right? It 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 is a different kind of work. It's often very emotional for people to really look at their own work with the fine tooth comb that's required to get that level of clarity. And it, I honestly just don't think it can be rushed. I think that like any skill, writing and communicating, um, I'm not saying it needs to take years, but it, it's something that requires concerted effort to get better at. You wouldn't, you know, if you wanted to be a master piano player, you would practice piano. If you want to sell your work, you have to practice selling. So that's the first thing that comes to mind when you when you're saying I'm considering lowering my prices, because again, you didn't say why here, so I'm not totally sure. But if it's because sales are low, lowering the price is not going to solve the problem. Um, and I do think sometimes it does, quote, solve the problem for people. And the reason it does is because you're more confident at that price. So you're actually selling more, you're promoting more, you're speaking about your offer more effectively, because you're not worried about the price. So it's not, it's not that the price lowering solved the problem, it's that you became a better salesperson when you weren't worried about the price anymore. Um, and that's also important to take into account, right? I, I love, most of you need to charge more, to be honest. Like I, I can make a broad generalization for the people I work with. Most of you need to charge more, or I would encourage you to, you can charge whatever you want. But like your most people I work with, their pricing is low for the work that they offer and the results that they help people to achieve. Um, but there is a confidence issue and there's a growing edge when it comes to pricing for a lot of people. So if you're like, oh, I overpriced this and I am like terrified to sell it, you know, that's deeper work. That's work to do with a coach, depending on the, the issue, to do with a therapist. Um, and you may need to lower your price as you do that work so that you can get some fucking sales. Because pricing is, pricing is really personal. But pricing is also a communication. So you need to think about who you're trying to reach and what you want to say about the value of your work. I guess you can say kind of long version. I generally don't think that lowering prices, or short version, generally don't think lowering prices is a solution. I don't think it solves the problems. But if your confidence is really low in your price, then maybe maybe that is a short-term solution. But keep in mind that that's not gonna solve the core issue, whether that's a money issue, a pricing issue, like some belief level work that needs to be done around money, or is a communication and sales issue. Now you're mentioning, is that an insult to past clients? I think this is funny because that tells me people have bought it at the price that you're charging. <laughs> so what I'm guessing here is actually that you probably don't, you might not even have a sales problem, maybe a little bit, but you probably have a lead generation issue. You probably don't have enough people. Uh, again, I'm, I have to guess here, but um, if you've sold it at this price in the past and now you want to lower the price, there, my intu, my, 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 not even intuition, like my like, I've been doing this for a long time, Spidey Sense says that you probably aren't getting enough sales and it's, but it's probably not a price issue. If people have bought it at that price, it is probably a lead generation issue. You don't have enough potential customers, in which case lowering the price definitely doesn't solve the problem. Um, you might scoop up some people who um, are fans and couldn't afford the other price, sure, but that's not going to fix the lead generation issue in the sense of you need to get in front of more potential customers. That's a marketing problem. So that is kind of my, my broad scope. Um, the final piece I'll say here is that if you do want to lower your prices, I highly recommend restructuring, repositioning, or at the very least, renaming the offer. When we change pricing, 
and we're going down, it needs to look different because it is, I don't know if it's an insult to past clients, but it doesn't make people feel good to see something they bought at a lower price. No one likes that. No one likes the feeling like they got ripped off. Even though that wasn't your intention, that's how it ends up feeling when we lower prices on something. Especially something that, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, you're mentioning clients, so my guess is your work is a little bit more expensive, right? It's not like you bought, somebody bought a pen for 10 bucks and then it was Amazon Prime Day and it was available for five bucks, right? Whatever, fuck Prime. Um, So, yeah, so it's usually easier to lower prices if you come out with a new offer. Looks different, maybe includes different things, includes fewer things, and that you massage the price there. That way it doesn't look like you just took the same thing and lowered the price and the people who paid you more just paid you too much. So I hope that's helpful. A lot of thoughts on price lowering, but I think my key takeaway here is usually, again, not always, and I mentioned, you know, the emotional component to this. And sometimes there is a, 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 people do overpricing sometimes, but I would say for the vast majority of people I work with, like the vast majority, that's not the issue. Lowering the price is a band-aid if it is a marketing issue, a sales issue, a communication issue, a confidence issue. And that's usually what it is, is one of those. So I would take a look at that. I hope that's helpful. Would love your thoughts on offering scholarships for a membership for uh, BIPOC or LGBTQ folks. Okay. So scholarships, I think, are really interesting um, in the online space. And I have a couple perspectives here. I think the first is being clear on why you want to offer scholarships. Um, Is it need-based in the sense that you're referring to folks who are from traditionally marginalized communities, might have less access to funds, and you want to create room for people to join something they probably, they might not be able to afford um, for the the people who probably can't afford it. Like that's who you're targeting with is, right? The folks that you want to have in your community. Or is it more of a reparations-based? Like you're like, I believe these people should be able to get access for free because of that historically uh, marginalized and presently marginalized status, right? Um, so that that shifts the perspective on how one offers it. If something's need-based, as in the sense like, if you are you know, a black trans person who in, who's unable to afford this, this is available for you, is different than all black trans people get to come for free, right? Those are two different like goals and two different perspectives. So there's probably, I mean, there's probably more nuance in there, but that's kind of the first question I ask is like, what is like the goal? What is the need in your community you're trying to fill? Who are the people that you are, are, are hearing from who are not joining, but want to, that you're trying to like fill the, fill this with? Um, I think the second piece is deciding how you're going to manage it. I think there's kind of two perspectives here. One is um, you make it available and it is openly available and anyone who self-identifies in whatever the categories you decide, the, um, the uh, whether it's need-based or not, has access to it. Or you can do application-style scholarships. Um, I think the problem with application-style scholarships is that they, they, for, they, they force people to prove that they are worthy of something, right? There's this, like, this um, verification. I mean, the whole scholarship concept really comes from our educational system, where, and there's this kind of, uh, like, sorrow Olympics thing that happens, I think, sometimes in that, where it's, you have to, like, prove that you are, that your, your shit is bad enough that you're worthy of this. I'm not saying that's what you're trying to do, but I think that just kind of starts to happen. I see that a lot in business, 
when business, uh, online businesses that do scholarships, there's this like, this exploitation of people's pain and challenges to validate their, their worthiness for a scholarship. So I mentioned that because I think that the solution if you want to do application style scholarships is to have other people involved, is to have people from your community, people representative of the identities and financial, racial, uh, gender, sexuality identities that you like want to support with this specifically, try to ha like to have like essentially a, um, that's what I want, a little collective, a little commission, right? Like to, to hire some friends who can, who have, who represent these identities to help you with it. Um, because I think that can really help to ensure if you're doing something like that, that your own personal bias doesn't come into play. I mean, not ensure, but help to mitigate that your bias doesn't come into play. Um, and that you are kind of like really taking into account different experiences in crafting that kind of scholarship. From a purely practical perspective, but also I think probably as a very small business owner, it's practical, but just like from like a human respect perspective, I think the first option is probably better. Um, I think it's easier. You can have a limited number of spots, but not doing an application, not doing like making people do this like, yeah, this um, like self-exploitation, uh, like, yeah, to, to say that they are worthy of it, right? Um, I think a few things I've seen people do that seem cool. I think having a set number of spots is awesome. That makes it really clear for people. Um, I think that the, um, I also know some folks who essentially for every like full paying member, um, I've mentioned this before in another live. Uh, I think it's one of my students who does this. Unfortunately, I cannot remember who right now, but I know I said it in another live. So if you want to go back and scroll through, through the free coaching Thursdays, you can probably see another one. I think I can't remember if it was scholarships or it might've been a sliding scale conversation, um, but you can find it uh, there uh, where, and I've seen folks like, you know, it's, you know, I put away this much money from every full paying person into a scholarship fund, right? So, so it's kind of like when more people join, then you can afford to do, to have more scholarship um, spots. Um, so I think those are a few things. I think a membership is a really great place to do that if you choose to, because it's so scalable. So um, you're able to support more people, but not kind of have an undue, um, like a really challenging weight on you in terms like, you know, versus doing like, you know, free, um, free one-on-one -on -one coaching or something, you know, for an extended period of time, like that, that, that could be harder as a small business owner to have the funds and the time to do that. So I think that's a good thing. I think the one last piece I want to mention, um, which is something I think about a lot, but I think, um, I'm pretty sure it was mentioned at a webinar I was at the other week. I mentioned this, I think, last week too. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of Desiree Attaway's work on DEI, and her and Jessica Fish and Erica Hines had their Whiteness at Work webinar a couple weeks ago. You can still buy um, their kind of summer package of, of videos and trainings that they're doing. Um, but they mentioned this specifically that, especially, you know, that before you start a, they're not talking about scholarships. But basically, before you start a diversity and inclusion and equity initiative, is your company, your organization, your community, in this case, in a membership, like ready to actually hold that space? Do you have the capacity to do that? Now, for you personally, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say some stuff that I don't think is about you. But you no, know, I read something recently, probably on the Twitter, unfortunately, um, so I don't remember where, um, you know, about communities that, you know, people will be like, oh, yeah, we're like super diverse. Come join. But then the uh, like Facebook groups aren't being moderated, right? So or aren't being actively moderated. So people are having conversations that are completely unsafe. 
And I was on a group like this last summer. Um, you know, somebody who I was super involved with uh, financially in a lot of different levels um, that I divested from because they were not keeping their shit clean in their Facebook group. Um, people were saying things that were offensive, that were dangerous, that were racist, and no one was managing it. Nobody was trying to support the members who were engaging with that content, who were having those conversations. Um, so I think that's like this last kind of piece is like, and maybe, and really is probably the first piece is that do you have the ability to support people from those communities? If you, if you reach out your hand and say, I would love to have you come and I'd love to have you come for free or at a discount. Um, I recommend checking out that work, Whiteness at Work. I think it's a really great program. I did it last summer. Uh, I think that they're, I really love their approach. It probably, it might be helpful for you um, or to hire somebody to, to kind of do an audit and see, you know, are you, are you able to hold that space? Um, and that that's like our responsibility if you're going to do that. I think the one last thing I'll mention, which I think is something else that I like a lot, is that sometimes people don't want to be in your program. <laughs> and um, especially if you are white, you are teaching spirituality or business or something, um, people may not want to be in your program. They want to be maybe be in programs where the leaders are reflecting their identities or reflecting their lived experiences more. That's okay. That's great. I think that a really powerful scholarship program would could also make room for collaborations like that, where if you have colleagues, um, colleagues of color, queer colleagues who are running things that are similar, that maybe you can help fund them bringing people in. Um, that that can be a really powerful way to redistribute wealth, to help people to build communities in the places they want to be in communities. Those are some ideas. Um, but ultimately, I think that uh, you know, it's your business, so you can figure out what's best for you. Oh, that's helpful. Some thoughts. All right. I'm at the very tip of my business. Everything feels chaotic and overwhelming to me. Uh, what is the first step you would take at this time as a Reiki business, including teaching classes? I literally have information overload. Um, I'm going to refer you back. We have actually talked about this a lot recently on Free Coaching Thursday. So if you go back and you look at my Instagram feeds, you'll see like what are the first steps to take. Um, I also just did a podcast episode on So You Want to Be a Witch called How to Start Your Online Business and exactly what I would do. I would start there. But the basic key is pick one thing to focus on. It sounds like you're doing too much. Um, teaching classes, doing Reiki, doing this, doing that. That's, of course, you have information overload. You also have business stuff overload, less stuff. Pick one thing to focus on for some period of time, sell it. That is it. But, um, so yeah, we do, we have covered that a lot recently. So I would definitely direct you back to that. Again, this, that episode, How to Start an Online Business, I think came out last week. So it's like, it should be right at the top of your feed on So You Want to Be a Witch, which is our podcast, wherever podcasts are sold for free. And then um, we've had several conversations on Free Coaching Thursday about that recently. So I'm going to kick you back there. Um, but definitely the biggest mistake I see new business owners take is have too many offers um, and no plan for selling them. You need like one or two offers and your time needs to be focused on selling them. That's it. Don't worry about the bells and whistles. Don't worry about like your marketing strategy. See if people will buy your thing. That is, that is it. I'm just cut through all the, cut through all the information. Um, and, you know, use the resources you have to do that. Use your personal networks, ask for referrals, um, do collaborations, 
you know, offer to like teach stuff for other people's programs, use what you got. Don't worry so much about, um, like mastering Instagram or something right now, like go get some sales, but check out those resources. I think the how to start your online business episode from two weeks last week or two weeks ago will be very helpful for you. So I hope that that helps. All right. I think that was everything today. Thank you all so much for being here with me live. If you're live, you're catching this replay or you're listening to it over on the podcast. I hope that this serves you well. Um, we do this every Thursday. So how you can participate is coming over on Wednesday, dropping your questions in my stories in the question box. We put it up on Wednesday afternoon. Thursday, I usually go live around 1 p.m. Eastern time today. I'm a little bit early, but I got other shit to do. So I'm going to go do that. And I will answer as many of your questions as possible. I will talk to you all later. I hope you have a beautiful day. Bye for now.